I was pleased when I went to Italy to find that when somebody was introduced, come on, Luigi. <laughs> people were offered uh, something for which everyone applauded. They applauded too, and I liked that. Because it was nice to be introduced so kindly and graciously. Thank you. Well, I'm going to start with a song. the mountains, peace gave us the sky, nightly when starlight enfolds us, this is its lullaby, amen, Gave us the morning, peace gave us the sun, bird songs that call us to welcome, day and fresh labors begun. the seasons, peace gave us the rain, cool clouds that gather to bless us, mist hands that soothe away pain. our hearts love, gave us our smiles, rays of thy presence within us, light that all strife reconciles. something in a box, something separate from anything that we know, something that maybe someday after death or some few, very few precious and rare souls attain, but something far removed from anything you and I know or possibly even can know. And what I want to, the point I want to make today is that all experience is divine. 
It's like a spectrum, except that a spectrum is beautiful at both ends. Whether it be violet or red, it's still beautiful, those pure colors of light. Whereas the spectrum I'm talking about is not so beautiful at one end and very beautiful at the other. Because in life, we find that there is the potential in every creature, in every human being especially, and somewhat in the animals, to rise from suffering into joy, to rise from darkness into light, to rise from hatred into perfect and selfless love. And the very essence of religion, as Gail was saying to us this morning, and presumably says every Sunday, and it's a deep truth, that joy is the essence of spiritual progress. You can know that God exists when in meditation you feel joy in yourself. And as that joy keeps increasing with your daily practice of the presence of God. But how can we say that that divine experience is present in darkness? How can we say that that divine experience is present in hatred and uh, misery and all the things that human beings also know? Well, the answer to that is that there is nothing except God. The answer to that is that there is nothing except the divine experience, but filtered. You see, that's the trouble. As you filter water to make it pure, there are also ways of filtering purity out and making it dirty, and that's what people do. They filter out that divine by getting involved in the world. You see, we all have heart quality. We have the potential to love. But because we get identified with the ego, and uh, by the way, people make a mistake when they say that the ego is wrong. When people speak of somebody deprecating, they say, oh, it's just his ego. Well, my answer to that is, what else could it possibly be? <laughs> That's all we know is our egos. The point is to make the ego your friend and not your enemy. The point is to become self-conscious in such a way that you include other people in that consciousness of self. When you include others in your happiness and when you expand your, your uh, identity, not in the sense of getting, becoming richer and richer and owning more and more property and owning more and more people, but in the sense of expanding your sympathies to include a concern for their welfare. When your ego tells you that I've had enough of this suffering, I want to find out how to be happy, then your ego is behaving right. It's telling you that I need to do something about it. That's really the basic difference between the uh, human beings and the animals. The animals don't have a developed sense of ego because they're not very intensely aware. They're more dim in their awareness. But the interesting thing is that because they don't have the ego and they don't get involved through that ego in thinking a lot and reasoning a lot and attachments and so on, they flow more. They also have a certain level of intuition that most human beings don't have. They have uh, instinct, you might call it, but it's more than that. I read, for example, of a family I think they were living in Minnesota. And if somebody's read the family, the story and says, no, 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 they were living in Minnesota, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter where they were living. They moved to Seattle. And they, in their move, they decided they couldn't take their cat. So they left their cat behind. A few weeks later, that cat turned up on their doorstep in Seattle. 
Now, that took intuition. It was more than instinct. We read many stories about animals' intuition, their ability to know, their ability to understand. People who ride horses in races know that the horse intuits what they want. They have the, a brain the size of a walnut. They're not very bright. But they have a lot of intuition. And they somehow know immediately. I, I'll never forget. Forgive me for dilating. It's always fun to it. Anyway. <laughs> uh, I had a niece, a niece, what I was saying, cousin, niece of my parents, who came to stay with us when we lived in, in the east, in Scarsdale. And they lived in uh, Ohio. So they came to stay with us. And she was 14 years old, and she wanted to go horseback riding. And <clears throat> I kept trying to put off this day of doom, because I didn't know anything about horseback riding. But she kept wanting it, so finally I said, all right. I couldn't let her go alone, 14 years old. So I said, OK, I'll take you. And so all the way to the Staples as I was driving her, I was 17, I suppose, at the time. Old enough to have a license, but by no means ancient yet. And uh, I was getting this mental image, sort of whipping up a little enthusiasm. And so I imagined myself leaping onto the horse's back and clapping the heels into its side and cantering off in the, toward the horizon. And so I got there and I saw this horse that they were leading gingerly up to me and I leapt on its back and clapped my heels into its side and there was a pause. <laughs> it knew immediately that I was a green horse. <laughs> They wanted to do to complete the embarrassment, but sort of shuffle over to a clump of weeds and start running. <laughs> it took a lot of work to get that horse moving. <laughs> Animals know. They, they know. When there was a man who used to visit friends, and they had a dog that, that he, it was a large dog, but uh, he was friends with the dog, and he would always greet it friendly, and the dog would uh, wag its tail and jump all over him and so on. Well, he went away for a few years, and he came back to visit him, and he thought it was the same dog, but it wasn't. In fact, it was a very vicious dog, they told him later. But he thought it was a friend. And so with that total confidence, he greeted this dog, to whom he was a complete stranger. And the dog, greeted with this complete confidence and affection, just fawned all over him as if it was an old friend. Many times, if you show fear, an animal will then start acting, reflecting that fear. They have intuition, but when you get to the human level, then you find people complicate things with all their, they don't flow with life anymore. But on the other hand, you can't say that animals, therefore, can rise above their state and become masters or become enlightened spiritually. No, it's a, on a primitive level. And many primitive people also have a lot of intuition. There's a story I read once in a book about a woman in some South Sea Island or somewhere who um, she, she said that whenever her husband went, went uh, shopping, if he forgot something, she would call him up and tell him what he needed, and he always <laughs> brought it. And they said, but uh, I, how come on a an island like this, you have a telephone. She said, oh, we're too poor to have a telephone. I guess you go down to the tree at the bottom of the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> so somehow they used the tree. Uh, but the, that was a means for her of uh, psychic communication.